Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Jamie Gordon, freelance cultural strategy consultant. In this episode, Jamie takes us through her journey of becoming a cultural strategist working for the for big corporate names, a path she said that her younger self would never have imagined. Yet she is loving every bit of it and she's sharing with us her enthusiasm for the job she does in which ethnography is her main tool of making a difference. How did Jamie move from research to innovation? A social scientist has the rare capability to become a practitioner of many tools and marketing can be a place where we can actually change the world in many ways, says Jamie. She shares examples of how she has managed to bring humanity into business and what methods she relies on to be able to get her insights to have a real impact. We talk about the power of storytelling and the potential that anthropology has to create empathy. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, friends. We are here today with Jamie Gordon, freelance strategy consultant. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Karina. Hello, everybody. So happy to be here. <laughs> I'm very happy to have you on our podcast, Jamie. Um, but before we dive deeper into the content of your work, I'd just like to ask you to tell me and our speakers a bit about your own career path um, in this space so far. Ah, okay. Well, um, you know, I've been I've been doing... I guess the, the kind of work I do now, which is in the space of, of brand strategy and marketing mm -hmm. strategy and, and communications for, let's see, how old am I? <laughs> um, so I think about, um, about 18 or 19 years now after I finished grad school. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I, I honestly started out, um, probably like a lot of students who start studying anthropology and sociology, not really knowing where I was going to be headed. Um, but I knew I had a passion for understanding culture and understanding humans. So, um, and I knew that I'd be able to use it. And I think I decided, um, right about in that transition between undergraduate and graduate school that I didn't want to stay in academia, um, that I wanted to take, um, this understand or this ability to understand humans into a more business focused context because I imagined that, um, you know, understanding humans um, and, and how to communicate with them um, would be incredibly valuable in that context. So um, I began uh, right after grad school working in market research. I had, um, you know, interestingly enough, a lot of us uh, students to make extra money, um, I would take surveys on the internet <laughs> to earn extra cash. Um, and every time I, I hit send on that last question, I always wondered what they were using or what they were doing um, with that data and how they were using it. So I decided that, you know, with my background, that would be a good place for me to start. So um, I actually ended up going to work for one of the online research companies that I was taking surveys from uh, and started there. Um, you know, the, the dot-com crash happened not long after. Um, so after leaving that place, um, I went and I worked in, um, I worked for a company called AC Nielsen, mm. um, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. So they have syndicated data, shopper data. Um, and my job was to, you know, understand the data trends for certain categories. And, um, and it was fun, but, um, I realized not, um, not really what I was after because I still had this real desire to take that data and tell stories, um, you know, from it and, and didn't have the opportunity to do that there. 
Uh, but then I got lucky and I found my way into brand strategy and innovation, which was a field I didn't know even existed. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was I was online looking looking for jobs, um, and I found this this place. It was called Fusion Five, um, and they worked with um, some of the country from in the U.S. Some of the biggest brands here and some of the world's biggest brands like um, like Coca Cola and Campbell's Soup. Um, and automotive brands like Daimler Chrysler and Jeep. And, um, you know, I came in and my role was initially to do uh, qualitative and ethnographic research mm. to help them um, really make meaningful connections, get meaningful insights that would then lead to things like brand positioning, how you talk about your brand as an idea and what it means to people or new product development or even, um, you know, scenario planning, which is, okay, so what's the future going to look like according to how culture is now, right? Um, and that's where I integrated the study of, I guess, trends too. So macro forces and trends, um, and then connecting those to the insights we were getting from different, um, I guess, what we call consumer targets. I don't like that word. <laughs> it makes it sound like we're in battle, but from different um, groups of consumers and, and connecting those two dots to help develop really meaningful strategies. Um, and I loved that job. And I learned, so I was there for several years and learned mm -hmm. so many things about how um, research or, um, and anthropological research, as well as sociological, you know, trends research and things like that can work together um, in a in a process to help bring us to um, new ideas, big ideas, really mm -hmm. relevant ideas, brands and companies. Yeah. Um, I learned learned semiotics in that job, which yeah. was wonderful. So yeah. I became a semiotician <laughs> doing that work. Um, I learned how to write product concepts. I learned how to design and facilitate ideation sessions. Um, you know, this this background in um, understanding how humans organized, but also understanding how um, how culture works within an organization really helped me to understand how to get you know, a bunch of people who work together, right, mm -hmm. uh, who had different backgrounds or different um, areas of expertise to, to come together in a room and be able to create ideas and have synergies. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very rare to find someone who has a skill set that can span so many things. But when you come from a social science background, mm -hmm. you really do get a unique understanding of how different pieces of projects intersect um, and how they need to flow to yeah. end up at something you communicate. Yeah. So, um, so my career path sent me through innovation. Um, I worked for a market, a bigger market research company for several years, helping them develop their consumer anthropology practice. Um, they were a company that, um, and they still exist in their excellent quantitative and qualitative researchers, but what they were missing was an understanding of how you integrate cultural insights into that research practice. How do you improve upon your qualitative methodologies and insights um, with ethnographic research um, and an understanding of, of trends, right, and, and macro forces, but also how do you um, build better quantitative tools, mm -hmm. right? So when you can get deeper cultural insights um, at the beginning of a quantitative project, your variables and the things that you are testing can mm -hmm. be that much richer. Um, yeah. And then on the back end, let's say when you have done uh, a segmentation of your consumer audience. So let's say you want to look at, you know, all the types of automotive buyers and you've decided that two or three of those segments, you know, are, are very appealing to your brand based on their income or demographics or lifestyle. You can then go and dig deeper with ethnographic research to understand more about the values that motivate those people mm -hmm. and the, and the cultural, um, cultural nuances that they have in common to help develop even more meaningful yeah. communications products, all of those things. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, from there I went on to do um, various things where I've, you know, integrated, um, and, you know, ethnographic approaches into the, the practice of developing brand strategy um, and innovation. And, you know, now I, I, I freelance for the most part. I work mm-hmm. with a, an innovation company pretty steadily uh, and I work with some ad agency clients and some some other consultants for, you know, when we have we need to put together teams of people. Yeah. <laughs> To, to do the right project, um, it, it's really great because I yeah. get to work with a really diverse group of folks um, and bring bring this bring this expertise. And it's um, I think at the at the heart of it, really, my job is to give the people that I do business with permission to be more human in the work that they do. Yeah. Right. So bring that humanity to the business of um, selling things by helping them integrate ideas um, into where they sell that remind humans that we belong to one another I yeah, suppose that yeah. we understand one another and belong to one another that's a very kind of meaningful goal to to dedicate your time and efforts towards well I mean I think yeah. you know I, I really believe marketing um, as a as a practice area um, and in this space where we're talking about brands and corporations that's where we have the opportunity to really to change the world in a lot of ways because it's um, the people who are spending money on advertising and communications and getting their products messages out there are the ones that the reach the most the most eyes and ears, right? They reach the most humans. So if you can get them to be communicating um, messages that show mm. what we have in common on a higher level, right? So so our what highest common denominator values do we all have in common? And how do you find ways to appeal to those? Um, then you know not only do the brands win because they are putting message out messages out there that make people feel good and make them want to. Um, engage with their brands, and, and studies have proven that when people love brands, when people relate to brands on a more human level, they buy them more often. Um, you know, preference increases, um, but also people win because they, you know, they're they're hearing these reminders on a day to day basis that um, you know we have more in common than we have different. Mm. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Do Do you have a particular project, Jamie, close to your heart that you can? Um, walk us through how you apply social your background in social science to business yeah you know i have i have a couple that are, are close to my heart you know i'm gonna, i'm going to pick one um because you know one project that was related to another project and both were actually for the campbell soup company um that i that i did many years ago um one of them i was working with their team so so at that company they have what they call a front end of innovation team, right? So when the data shows that there is what they call a white space, right? There's an opportunity in a specific category that, um, you know, maybe hasn't been saturated yet and there's money out there to be had, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) With with an idea in a specific space or um, maybe one of their chefs identifies a trend that they'd like to look at or they just have, you know, something that they're passionate about exploring, uh, you know, as, as a part of that process, they, they do ethnographic research where they go to people's homes, right? And they spend time with people who they think are the most, um, valuable target for that potential white space or product. And, 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 um, and, and they learn about them and they learn about their values and they learn about, you know, how they engage with that particular category and what the context of their life is that dictates that. And so, um, one project we were working on was about healthy eating and snacking for kids. They realized that there was um, a, a white space opportunity to create healthy snacks for kids to help teach kids better habits, but they knew that there were a lot of barriers, right? So A, you know, kids <laughs> kids have a hard time enjoying healthy things, right? Um, and it's also hard for parents to get their kids to eat healthy. Um, so 
So how were they going to to overcome that barrier? So we went and 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 did work with parents who um, parents who had children who specifically said, yeah, you know what, I want my kids to eat healthier, but I'm having a hard time doing that. So we we went to spend time with people in their homes to figure that out. Um, and and this actually ended up being a happy accident. So every now and then you um, you hire recruiters to find you people, right? Mm. So that you can go do your research because um, you can't find them all on your own. And every now and then you don't get the right person, right? Someone maybe lied about, you know, their income or um, wasn't completely accurate. But in any case, we ended up in one home that, you know, we, we, we had pulled up out front and we realized this person was not in the demographic. They were, it was a very, very low income area. And it was very obvious that this person did not meet the income requirements that we needed because the product that would be produced would be at a certain, you know, for a certain mm-hmm. income level, right? Uh, and, and a client said, you know what, maybe, you know, it's, it had been a long day. We had already done two other three hour in home interviews. And she's like, why don't we just go back to the hotel? The, that person will still get paid. It was a misrecruit. It's fine. And, and, you know, we said, you know what? No, we can always learn something. Right. So, so well, let's go ahead and do it. Um, our clients left that session very, very moved. They, they, you know, people who came from their white collar professionals who came from very middle class, you know, backgrounds. Right. And hadn't seen poverty like this and hadn't seen the kinds of challenges that this mother who, you know, worked a night shift. She had three children um, from from young children to teenagers who had various struggles. And the probably the biggest part of their struggle was being able to afford healthy food mm-hmm. or food in general, um, not to mention knowing how to cook. Um, and having the tools to cook and all these things. So, so they left actually very upset <laughs> because, um, and, and, and there were, there were all kinds of things they wanted to, well, can we give these people money? What can we do to it? I said, well, you know, no, they're not, you know, there, there, there's no one in that house that was ashamed of who they were. <laughs> so, so let's not do that. If you want to send them a gift, gift basket, that's fine, <laughs> you know, for thanking them for participating. But, um, what it motivated in, um, the two clients who were there with me was this desire to, do something where they could meet a need, um, this other need that hadn't been met, which is, you know, we want to be able to provide quality food products for people who um, can't afford, like, we want to be able to serve the same quality food or make the same quality food for people in lower income that you can find at Whole Foods or, or something yeah. like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, a year and a half later, they, they had been working kind of nights and weekends to develop a business plan, and they had presented that business plan to the people at Campbell's Soup who decided to fund a, um, a new line of business. It was called, it's called the soulful project. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a business designed to be a buy one, give one, um, where they made healthy, um, products, right. Um, food products It started with like a potted, like oatmeal product that could be sold at whole foods. Um, that was a super delicious, high quality product for anybody who could afford it. But for every serving, um, of that product sold, um, one serving will be donated to a food bank in the community where it was purchased, right? Mm-hmm. They, they've been around now a couple of years. They're in like 1,500 stores in the U.S. now and they're doing very well. It, it was the empathy um, created from from that one engagement, that one kind of ethnographic engagement that led to um, someone actually doing be- something better in the world, right? Yeah. Um, creating something very, very meaningful. Um, and then a year after that project happened, I worked with another team at Campbell's Soup where they – I, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, in, we call it the value channel here in the U.S. And basically it's things like, with, um, like they call them dollar stores, mm-hmm. right? So the Dollar Tree, every, you know, um, Dollar General where like everything's a dollar and, yeah. and really expensive and, 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 and things along those lines. And they, um, they realized that there were two different types of people who shop there. There were the people who go there to, 
you know, for entertainment, right? To find like little bargains and hunts, you know, and, and to have a little fun shopping. But then the other half were people who um, were living in poverty, right? Living in food deserts where, you know, they're basically areas where you don't have access to grocery stores and, and these Dollar Tree dollar stores were the only place they could go shop for food, mm-hmm. right? Without mm-hmm. having to drive or something like that. And that they knew nothing about that um, that consumer. So we um, spent a few months working with them, um, doing ethnographic research with people and families who were living at or below the poverty level, who were relying on government assistance for food, um, to help them understand their 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 barriers and motivations with regard to healthy eating, um, as well as grocery shopping and, and and fresh food and all of those kinds of things, to help the people who were their customers, which were the dollar channel retailers, right, really understand who they were serving so that they could make space for um, development of products that they could sell in those channels that mm-hmm. were, you know, a little healthier, a little better, right? Yeah, yeah. Social justice and human rights and things like that are, are a passion of mine. So yeah. to be able to have a client that expressly said, you know, we want to figure out a way to innovate for, for these people, not for people who have lots of money, but for people who don't. Um, and we can do that by, you know, designing project, for example, by designing products at our standard higher margin, right? So 30, 40% profit and then selling them at a lower yeah, profit, yeah. right? Like to be able to motivate, them, I mean, at a big company like that, fascinating, yeah. you know, and then, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the specifics were that came out of that, but I know that um, it's, it's a project that um, still gets talked about there and has had a lot of legs. Those, um, products and that client in particular has been one that's just been near and dear yeah to my heart. jimmy um and how do you how do you manage to move from that empathy in that one home interview to getting an organization to move to make something like this happen because it's not it's not very easy i know from my own experience yeah. <laughs> working both in business and um mm-hmm. in research that you know you might generate empathy in a group of people that come for an interview, but then you go back into the organization, into the structure, the bureaucracy, the procedures and processes. And Mm -hmm. it's very easy for that empathy to get eroded. It's very easy for that spark to not really catch. How, what happened in this case that this didn't, didn't, didn't occur? You know, I, and it's not to say that things didn't occur. I just don't know what occurred. I think the the, the gap and, and the reason why I started working with ad agencies uh, a couple of years ago was because, you know, you, you leave the strategy on the table, right? And then, and, mm. and then you don't necessarily, unless you work with that at the client's company, have any um, input as to what happens next, right? So, mm-hmm. so working with ad agencies is great because you can turn those insights and strategies into creative briefs that then turn into creative executions and communications and you have control over the kinds of things that get said in those briefs. Um, I think, you know, the, the challenge with making innovations like that happen, I mean, that, that soulful project story was an anomaly, right? Um, it doesn't normally happen like that, but the people who were running this project um, were, you know, professional marketers and professional designers, people who had launched brands and knew how to find the numbers to corroborate their you know, uh, vision, right. Mm -hmm. To to show the data. Um, but in the case of innovation, typically, um, you can't just get away with doing some in-home interviews and, and shedding a few tears or, you know, getting people excited. Um, there, there are a lot of things that need to happen, um, on on the front end as well as the back end. So first of all, the data, you, you need to be able to provide data on a macro level that shows that there is a trend, right. That will be, um, lead to, 
I guess, some sort of a profit opportunity or awareness opportunity or growth opportunity, right? So that's a trend in category data and sales and things like that. But that's also being able to, um, and this is where a lot of companies, big companies have trouble. Um, I think there was an IBM CEO study several years ago that said that this was the number one problem that CEOs had, which is how to take um, all of these insights about megatrends, what I call macro forces and trends, you know, things like... Um, you know, the, the sociological, technological, environmental, you know, political trends, um, and ladder and, and figure out what to do with them. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's, it's great to know that there are all these things happening in the world, but what does it mean for me and my business? So you've got to first on the front end, be able to share that, you know, these are the, the forces and trends that will have an, that are very important to your business, um, and your customers. Um, so a, you know, being able to put things in a big picture and being able to ladder that down to business opportunities. Um, but also, you know, connecting that, um, being able to facilitate that empathy for the consumer, right. For the humans that they're selling to in a meaningful way. Um, and, and, and I've learned that one of the most effective ways to do that, um, is with video storytelling, for example. Um, you know, this challenge in anthropology of, um, cultural relativism, right? Which is who has the right to communicate about the culture of a people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it, is it the researcher or is it, is it the people themselves that they're talking about? So, um, so I've had a lot of success with, um, you know, as we do ethnographic research and we, we film it, <laughs> right? Um, and we ask people not just about their interaction with the category or their behaviors, but in various ways, we ask them to articulate their values, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so you can create little mini documentaries that um, help generate that empathy that if you tell the story well, um, can be used over and over again to inspire ideation sessions. And things. Yeah, so yeah. for example, let's say we uncover five different values and we do five different three minute sections of a video that where you have the consumer articulating that value and then relating it, you know, directly to, you know, from different parts of the interview, things they do in their life or with brands or with that category. Mm. Um, and, and having, you know, the executive teams from a brand like the CEO, the vice president of marketing, things like that, just being able to sit and hear from their consumers and then, you know, be able to develop ideas from that place of empathy. Yeah. Um, and, and those kinds of videos can be used again and again, project to project, because people's values don't change that much over time, right? Maybe as you enter different life stages, they do. But for the most part, um, there are certain values that stay steady. So things like video storytelling are important, but also things like narrative storytelling. Yeah. So Taking it off the PowerPoint slide, a lot of the ways we present things in business, right, is we use PowerPoint presentations with bullet points and we talk to the bullet points and we show the charts and all of those things. But um, what's most powerful when you are trying to motivate behavior change is to present um, those insights in the form of a story, stories that have um, familiar archetypes. You know, if you look to psychology, like Jungian psychology, for example, Carl Jung talks about archetypes and all of these different, you know, these different resemblances of types of um, humans, right, and, and behavior, and they're things we can all relate to and remember. So, so that narrative actually goes a long way um, because it's a story you can remember in your head as opposed to a set of bullet points, <laughs> a story yeah. that you can tell. Um, so, so, so those things are important. So it's connecting these the macro forces and trends to to business realities and consumer behavior, but then also um, using different ways of storytelling via video or narrative. Um, to be able to instill empathy. Um, and then 
making sure that that empathy holds um, and then you bring that into the development of ideas um, and, and into the development of processes and, and things along those lines. Um, it's, not, it's not easy work and a lot of times yeah. it's very time consuming but um, because the other part of that too and probably equally as critical to understanding the consumer voice and the consumer lifestyle is to understanding the culture of um, the organization that you're working with, yeah, understanding yeah. the culture that your clients are working within, how they are measured, how their success is measured in their roles, right? Um, what motivates them to do their job, right? What are their barriers to getting things done? <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that's where the sociology piece comes in too, right? So the, the, the organization and the culture of that organization determines how you're going to need to develop communications and organize meetings, right? And, 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 and ideation sessions and things like that so you can get the best results. It's a very prescribed and normativized environment as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, mm -hmm. I was thinking into the, the story that you mentioned earlier with, uh, how you ended up in that interview without really planning to because mm -hmm. of also, you know, certain groups, they are, they are made to be invisible. They are mm -hmm. taken out of the equation uh, and repeatedly. So to a point where you normatize that. Um, yeah. So then you kind of forget they're there. You forget that you have a kind of a responsibility towards them as well. It's exciting. Mm. And I think that's why I picked that project example, mm. because that one accident, yeah. I, I would be willing to bet that that one accidental interview played a very big role yeah. in inspiring that innovation team to then look at yeah. people living in pop poverty when they were approaching this this next project and they might not have done that heard about that experience and had that not them to think outside of their frame a little bit yeah so um i i very much empathize with the story that you said because i went through a, a similar process myself working for a financial company where they had also uh, made the group of people that had lesser income invisible to their development process um mm. so as we were trying as an anthropologist to kind of make that group visible again to them. And we tried multiple approaches to see, you know, like how can we get them to question uh, the targeting that they had and why they made a certain group invisible and how can they make it visible and what is their role into that? It was very difficult because they were very resistant to that. And at the end, yeah. um, it ended okay. up, um, it ended up with something that we ended up thinking about, you know, like what is our role as anthropologists at some point to kind of, um, if the company does not want to look at that, right? Like, what do we do? Mm -hmm. Do we just leave it? Do we just drop it? It's it's hard, but I don't I don't think you can leave it or drop it. But it's not always easy, and you know, mm. sometimes you fail. But um, yeah. you know, I did work work for for a client who, um, and and I'm pretty sure the confidentiality for this still exists. It's an automotive manufacturer who's very strict about their confidentiality. So even though this project was in like 2010. I'm pretty sure I can't name names, but yeah. it, um, it was a brand. There's a family of um, Asian automakers that have that had a brand in the U.S. that was very focused on youth. Um, they had launched in the early 2000s as a very specifically youth brand designed as an entry level vehicle to get young people into their family of brands. Right. So that when they maybe were done with this car, they would buy another one of their brands later on and they would go through to the mainstream and to the luxury brand. Um, and this brand, when it launched was very, very trendy and very hip and very cool. And, and they, they got it right. They actually created a category, which was very, very exciting. But, you know, as, as the years passed, it was, you know, 2007, 2009, we had, you know, we had 9-11, we had the subprime mortgage crisis, we had the economic recession, but all of these things that happened, um, in the U S you know, their sales started to slip, but they, you know, they realized that they had, um, 
not checked in with youth culture after all of these shifts had happened, right? Um, and they had all of these visions. So they wanted to get back and, and look again at youth culture and look at trendsetter culture because their target was trend. They had a what they called a marketing target, but not a buying target. So they wanted to market to trendsetters and youth trendsetters and youth influencers in order to sell cars to young people. Um, and there were there were a couple problems. One, they had all these presumptions about youth and young people um, that that were incorrect, and we had to motivate them to look at that and you know look at how culture had changed. So the idea that young people um, actually did respect now their parents' opinions and older people's opinions on considered purchases that were expensive because money is not easy was not as easy to come by. Um, they were nesting and valuing family more. So all of these things that were the anti-rebellious attitude that they had seen. But then this idea of, and this was the biggest point of contention, this marketing target versus a buying target. So we ended up telling them, look, so we, we were going to do some focus groups as a part of the repositioning of this brand or as a to precede the repositioning of this brand. And um, so they said, OK, well, we want to do groups with our, our marketing target. So we want to have groups of trendsetters and influencers and we want to talk to them about the brand. And so, but we insisted that, okay, fine, we'll do that. But let's also do groups with the people who are actually buying your product. Mm. And the people who were actually buying that brand were very, very, very different. They were older, <laughs> like baby boomers who bought the, bought the car because it was easy to get in and out of and had a lot of space. You know, people who, you know, were not hip, not trendsetters, <laughs> um, people who were basically the diametrically opposed exact opposite of, um, of who they were marketing to. And they had to hear a lot of difficult things from the trendsetter target as well. So they, they, uh, they started seeing the pragmatic way people were approaching that brand, the people who bought it. But then they also were looking at the um, disdainful way that the people who were their marketing target were looking at their brand. So on the one hand, they were, they thought it was really great to be able to go to parties at bars that were sponsored by this brand and get free drinks and you know, all <laughs> of these kinds of stuff. And they were hiring DJs and, you know, all these things. But on the other hand, um, you know, these were people who didn't buy cars, right? They took public transportation. They, or if they did buy a car, it was a used car. Like their focus was more creative, um, things like that. But, um, they also thought of the brand as somewhat of a poser. Um, so as, as, as inauthentic, um, you know, as someone trying to be cool, but that wasn't. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, they had to hear a lot of difficult things about, <laughs> about their brand from the people that they were marketing to that I think they were reluctant to hear. I mean, they had a, um, for example, they had learned, you know, um, for people who were into cars and tuning cars, you know, and in racing cars that, um, the idea is so this brand had sponsored a drift racing team, right? I don't know if you're familiar with drift racing, but it's, um, you know, racing that's done in re in rear wheel drive because you're going down a mountain and it's got a lot of curves and it was originated in like the mountains of Japan and oh, wow. Asia, things like that. Um, so they sponsored these teams, but they didn't have a vehicle that had rear wheel drive. <laughs> so um, they were sponsoring this um, team in this very passion oriented, you know, sport, but they didn't have a vehicle um, that that people could race <laughs> um, in that context. So they were doing all of these things wrong in the interest of being cool instead of um, approaching the marketing and sales of their vehicle in a way that was more pragmatic and appealed to um, the realities of, of who would be interested in, mm. in buying this car. So it was a, it was a long journey and a lot of fighting. <laughs> um, and they did end up realizing after all was said and done and that, you know, we repositioned the brand that this brand actually 
doesn't necessarily have a place in our culture anymore. So that brand is now being rolled up underneath the master brand as like a single model vehicle, right? Yeah. Um, and it's being phased out as of the last couple of years. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was it was a it was a lot of push and pull because this client really wanted to see themselves in a certain way and their brand as appealing to some very specific people, and it just wasn't. Um, it just wasn't the way it was. Um, and when you have an entire organization whose resources are devoted to one direction, mm-hmm. it's like moving a mountain, you know, moving an iceberg and having it go another way. <laughs> um, so, it, um, you know, it, it can be very, very challenging. But, you know, again, it's, um, you know, just you've got to put them in the world of their consumer and, and let them see, the, see it for themselves. <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you think helped you in that process to kind of um, convey that message? in a way that it, it resonated with them? Um, they had to hear it over, I don't know how many different types of ethnographic and qualitative research we did, but oh. we had to do it over and over and over. At the beginning, we made sure that it happened at the beginning of the project as exploratory work. Um, you know, in, in the middle of the project as validation for the segments that we were recommending, right, um, ethnographic work. And at the end of the project to, um, to, to again, test the ideas and re-articulate them, articulate and re-articulate them again in a relevant way. Because you had the, first you had the, you know, the brand audience and the, and the strategy audience. And then you had the, um, you know, the communications audience at the end. Um, and, you know, different people getting involved in different stages of the project, project, but they all needed to basically hear it from the, the point of view of the culture of the consumers they were dealing with. And so it just, it was, um, it took over a year, this project. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, it took about 13 months, 14 months, um, from start to finish to, to, to get it, get it through. It was probably the most difficult project I've ever done just from a client, um, buying yeah. standpoint because, yeah. um, there was just so much immovability <laughs> and resistance to change. Um, and I can see why, because it ended up, you know, the brand is now going away. And so, you know, people have had to make changes in their own lives um, and their jobs and, and all of those things. So, yeah, it has, it has real time repercussions, no real life repercussions on the ecosystem of the company. Yeah. It does. That's mm. a chal- I mean, that's a big deal. Mm. People are going to lose their jobs sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? But sometimes it'll create new jobs. So it's a, it's a big, big deal. <laughs> yeah. Jamie. So looking back into how you started into this world, would you, would you have, you know, said at the beginning, um, that, that this is the way you're, you're going to apply social science? And, and, you know, if you would go back, what would you say to your younger self? Would you have taken a different approach? Ah, you know, I never would have thought in a million years. (laughs) Um, I, I thought maybe I would get to learn some cool things and, and develop some creative solutions. And, you know, um, like I, I was excited when I was working at AC Nielsen and I was reading the data reports and I would go, Oh, I can see a story here. I can write an ad from this, you know, like I can see a story and I would get really excited, but I thought that was the furthest I'd be able to go. And I honestly thought too, that my job Karina was to help these companies find out, um, how different consumer targets were, different from one another? What were the nuances of their differences that were meaningful, that would help them sell things to these people? And um, what I learned, which I talked about earlier, which I think is the most important thing, is that it isn't about the Mm. differences. It's about the similarities, right? Um, And that if you dig deep enough, you can find these really beautiful, magnificent similarities that, um, that are on a higher order plane that connect to the things that um, connect to love right? Mm-hmm. The values that, that motivate us to move forward. 
um, as opposed to, um, you know, bring us backward into the familiar, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the values that inspire us to change our behavior in a way that moves us forward. So, um, I realized the power of it. So I think I would have told myself early on, like, get excited (laughs) because what you do, like really can change the world. I mean, I have worked with brands who reach millions and millions of people, you know, tens of millions of people every day with these companies who, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with people who have the power to make decisions to, to create meaningful change and meaningful change that is a win for their company because it helps them sustain their business, make more money, grow, satisfy their shareholders. Yeah. Yeah. But it also helps make the world a better place. And I never dreamed that, um, consumer culture could change the world, but, um, but where we are um, as a global culture, that is, um, we are a global culture of consumerism. It's, it's what we're driven by. And whether or not that's the right motivation um, is kind of irrelevant at this point because it's the train we've all gotten on. So yeah. how do we use that as a tool um, to help us, um, you know, help bring us together and, and keep us moving in the right yeah. direction? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's just so exciting. So um, I had been invited a couple of times to give a talk to like uh, first-year graduates or third-year undergraduate students about careers in anthropology outside of academia. And um, I had gone and given my talk, talked about similar things that we've talked about here. And about a week later, I got an email from um, one of the students in one of those classes. And what she said was, you know, when she was heard that I was coming to talk um, and she had read, I had written a chapter in a textbook with another author about market research practices using anthropology. She said she was all set to hate me because <laughs> she felt like what I was doing was exploiting human culture for profit and to feed the machine and to do all this evil. <laughs> so she was ready to really hate me. But that after hearing my talk, she realized, um, you know, not only did she didn't not hate me, but that there was so much value that the kind of work that I do was bringing to the world. And it inspired her to reframe that um, and look at that in a different way. So um, that, that made my year, it made my five years knowing that um, I could help change, change the frame of that, that that the, uh, that the consumer machine is not necessarily all bad, that the people who work inside of that business are humans who want their work to have meaning, right. Who want to do good things for the world. So all you've got to do is give them permission and the work we do gives them permission um, I I remember my own position when I graduated from anthropology, also with a background in industry, and that's how we met, right? Um, so I remember our first talk when I was trying to figure out, you know, how can anthropology bring value into the business space, and and is it even possible to bring these two worlds together in a way that is meaningful? Uh, and I I can still remember Jamie, like your optimism and your energy and your positivity. Um, that just made me believe that it's possible. And I think that's, you oh, know, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it still stays with me up to this day because you are one of the, the few people I, I talked to after I graduated um, that I wanted to understand how you applied it. Um, and so I think... You made my day again. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, more than the stories and the experience, it's just the optimism and the positive energy. Um, yeah, that kind of st- stuck with me, you know, a lot of time in this space you... People speak either for, from a place of knowledge or from a place of, um, you know, like a, a place of rationality or a place of power, authority. Mm. Huh? And I yeah. think, and I think um, so rarely you get to feel the energy behind the way they engage with a topic. 
so yeah, I guess I love my work very much. <laughs> and it's not, it's never easy to be honest. So. Yeah. So I really, I really, I, I feel honored to, to have the time to, you know, bring you on our project and, and, you know, share you and your energy and your experience with our listeners, because I hope they can get the same value that I had graduating or at that student at that university. So yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. How, well, how wonderful! Thank you. I'm, I'm, I just don't think I had any idea the the impression I had I had made. So that's that's very nice, very kind. Yes, uh, and yeah, particularly in that world, right? Like advertising and and messaging, and you know, there's so much you can say about how messages are constructed and hierarchies of power and consumption. And yeah, it's it's easier to criticize and look at the bad side and forget the human aspect that that still is inside there. So. I think that I think that's pretty cool, um, and yeah, keep spreading that message. I think it's it's worth spreading. <laughs> oh well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I I I know it's worth spreading. Um, you know, and I and I could talk to you from a place of knowledge, and I could cite data and say, yeah. tell you all the reasons why um, doing this work in this way has value, because it does, and there's science to mm. prove it, and there's data to prove it, and there's yeah. dollar signs to prove it. But really, at the end of the day, it's um, knowing knowing the value of human understanding and um, being able to sh to share that with other people and have them pass it on. And I think you know, and and in these industries now, you know, it's um, you know, when I when I was getting my anthropology degree, and then I have a, also a, a master's degree in applied sociology. Countless mm -hmm. times, I got asked the question, "What are you going to do with that? <laughs> what are you going to do with those degrees?" Um, but now those degrees are sought after, um, yeah. you know, and, and when I need experts for project, where do I go to? I go to the consumer culture theory people, um, mm. on, on Facebook, they have a group and they have conferences. I go to the Epic people, yeah. the ethnographic praxis and in industry. I go to the anthropologists, um, ad agencies look for people with social science backgrounds. Yeah. Innovation companies look for people with social science education and backgrounds. Um, you know, and, and even on the client side, they're looking for those things too, because they understand that, you know, big data <laughs> and all of those things can only take you so far. But if you really want to know the why, really want to get at the heart of the matter, literally the heart and soul of the matter, then you've got to find people who know how to um, understand people and, and, and understand the people that they're talking to enough to be able to tell those stories in a way that motivates behavior change. Yes. And we will put down below in the, in the comments of our podcast, all these wonderful, um, mentions that you made, uh, regarding these groups. So thank you again for being with us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure and continue the work, great work that you're doing, Karina. That's a, it's a great podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.